0: Hello everyone, it's me, Kendra Arsno. Spectrum Magazine, SDA Kinship, along with yours truly, have come together to bring you a brand new podcast series called Imago Gay, where we bring you the latest on queer theology, studies, and a minority perspective on faith. Looking back a couple weeks ago, we spoke with Ari Bates about her experience at Southern Adventist University. And the policies being put into place that would affect trans students one of the latest updates following her meeting with the aclu was posted on tiktok saying
1: i just wanted to give a quick update about ari's case at southern adventist um so based on the legal and the political climate In Tennessee and the sixth circuit right now which is what Tennessee is in, we decided not to go with litigation just because if it were to come down the wrong way it would be really hard and that's kind of what it looks like it would be especially with the Supreme Court right now we don't want their hands on this case just because of how hostile most of those justices are and how that decision would very much negatively impact Uh, the greater transgender community.
0: So what exactly does the law say? What are the legalities in play when LGBTQ students and employees face discrimination at religious institutions? Why are there different standards for secular employers versus religious employers? These are the questions we're asking today. When my contract was terminated for coming out as bisexual, I got a lot of questions asking, do you have a case? So I spoke with Amanda Gannum, an attorney in the Detroit area who works on Title IX cases, and this is what she had to say. So, Kendra,
1: when you first called me as a civil rights and employment lawyer, obviously the fact that you got fired from your job uh, set off a massive you know, red flag and alarm bell in my head. And um, obviously the fact that you got fired two days after publicly coming out is just the biggest possible red flag <laughs> a lawyers such as myself can imagine. In a normal case, and by normal, I mean uh, a non-religious employer. Let's say you worked for, uh, I don't know, Google. You know, if I found out that you were terminated from your job two days after coming out, I would think that that would be blatantly illegal. So in Michigan, what we have is both uh, federal and state law, obviously. We have uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is the federal law. And then we also have the Michigan version, the Elliot Larson Civil Rights Act. And what both of those laws do is prevent or prohibit uh, discrimination based on sex, gender, and now under the federal law, sexual orientation specifically. That's a pretty recent Supreme Court decision. So generally, you you can't fire somebody because they're gay or bi or queer or whatever they identify as. You, you just can't do it. You used to be able to right. do it. Uh, you cannot anymore. So, but with religious institutions, we have certain First Amendment complications.
0: First Amendment complications. As with all freedoms, it's a double-edged sword. Why is this? Why are churches and religious institutions exempt from being held accountable in these ways. So basically, the
1: religion clauses of the First Amendment, freedom of religion for everybody, separation of church and state, things that sound great and are great, you know, fundamentals of American democracy, we're generally into those things. But when it comes to the implications of having conservative judges and the implications for more conservative religious institutions, are that these First Amendment doctrines get used in a way that is very politically conservative and, you know, my opinion, very oppressive to certain minorities. So what we Mm -hmm. have seen develop under the First Amendment is a couple of doctrines that are closely linked. One is called ecclesiastical abstention, uh, also referred to as church autonomy doctrine, and one is the ministerial exception doctrine. So those are, um, they're closely linked, and what they basically say is that the courts, the, you know, secular United States and and state, you know, Michigan courts, stay out of church decisions. That separation of church and state, the churches and other religious institutions have the right to sort of make their own decisions about church law and policies. If folks just started bringing lawsuits uh, in the regular secular courts and asking courts and judges to interpret questions that are are really left up to church law and church doctrines and policies to interpret, then that would be an impermissible entanglement between the secular state and the religious institutions. Does that all make sense so far?
0: So you're saying the courts consider it to be an entanglement when they get involved in cases of discrimination that happen in the church? I guess I'm having a hard time understanding because Some might say this is an unfair comparison, but essentially what you had in the 60s and 70s were businesses and schools saying, we're not going to integrate black and white students because of, quote, religious reasons. And the court stepped in and said, I'm sorry, but no, you're a business, you're a school, you need to integrate. And they stepped in in these matters of discrimination and said, your religious beliefs don't apply here. But maybe that's just because these were schools and businesses and weren't churches? I mean, what's the difference? Why will they step in in these particular cases, but not in instances of LGBTQ discrimination?
1: So I don't quite know where all these people's heads are at, but your your head, Kendra, is definitely in the right place, because what I see this as is a reversion to a, a time in American history in which churches and religious institutions and religious people were sort of permitted to rely on their religious beliefs to discriminate. It's linked to Roe versus Wade and religious exemptions for healthcare providers. It's linked to this history that you cite to in America of of using religious beliefs to say, well, we should be allowed to segregate and discriminate. I I see this as a continuation of that. And with sort of the aggressive rise of right-wing politics that we see, you know, a majority conservative Supreme Court that we have now. I I see this going very much in that direction and these sort of religious carve-outs for religious institutions and and mainly large, you know, Christian religious institutions to be able to do things like blatantly discriminate in employment that we simply don't allow other, you know, regular employers and, and other secular institutions to do. So, what we have now is you cannot bring a employment discrimination case against a religious institution, basically. You could literally walk into a church and be like, hi, I'm a woman or I'm a Middle Eastern or I'm a lesbian and I would like to apply for a job. You know, you can walk in and apply for that job. And if a church says, you know, hey, we're not going to give you this job because you're African-American or we're not going to give you this job uh, because you're a woman or you know, we're going to fire you because you've just come out as bisexual. The case law has shaken out to where the courts are just going to say, yeah, well, they're actually allowed to do that because the churches are allowed to make their own decisions about who teaches their beliefs and their doctrines. They're allowed to make those decisions for themselves. The courts will not intervene in those decisions.
0: What about institutions that receive public funding like universities? Also, you know, churches are a non-profit, and they're receiving some benefit from the state in which they don't have to pay taxes. In that regard, don't they have some level of accountability to the public and practices that align with public law? Or does the religious liberty card trump this accountability?
1: You know, another answer that I hate, but, but basically, yes, You, they're saying you know, even though you get public funding where, again, I'll give just an example, any other employer or institution that receives federal funding, for example, is is subject to Title VI of the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964, which says if you receive federal funding, you cannot discriminate based on race. Title IX education amendments, If if you receive federal funding, you cannot discriminate based on sex and gender. So there are these laws, but the First Amendment means that basically these laws don't apply to churches and religious institutions. What's been made really clear is that churches can do whatever they want with respect to employment disputes involving those holding certain important positions within churches and other religious institutions. So that's language that comes direct out of a Supreme Court case called Our Lady of Guadalupe Schools versus Morrissey Baruch.
0: Before we get into the Morrissey Baruch case, I want to take a minute to reflect on how my views on this issue have been changing. If you grew up in the church or ever found yourself in a conservative phase of your religious development, you've heard phrases like, the church is under attack. Pastors in California are being targeted to adopt the LGBT agenda. In California where I grew up, there was a proposition called Prop 8. Now this is a full seven years before gay marriage is legalized on a federal level. The proposition intended to ban same-sex marriages. There was a campaign taking place on campus called Vote No on Proposition 8. At that time, I was in a place where I was comfortable with my bisexuality, and I had a lot of gay friends. I remember having this conversation with an elder from my church, and being encouraged to vote against LGBTQ rights. I remember saying to him, I cannot look my friends in the eye and tell them that I didn't vote no on Prop 8. I can't look myself in the eye and do that. About two years later, I fell into a religiously conservative phase. I was gaslit into believing that my own moral intuitions were so skewed, so corrupt, that I could not possibly make moral decisions that were outside the scope of what my church had voted on as a body. It's taken a long time to regain confidence in myself and more so to regain my humanity, the one that sees people and not policy. In a case that goes back as recently as 2020, Agnes Deidre morrissey Baru brought a discrimination lawsuit against the Catholic school called Our Lady of Guadalupe, claiming that there had been employment discrimination based on her age, which is a direct violation of the Age Discrimination Employment Act. The decision in question was essentially this, does this person fall under the Ministerial Exemption Act, in which religious institutions are not accountable for instances of discrimination because they are protected under the First Amendment? Essentially, they retain the freedom to choose what kinds of people they want teaching their doctrines. In this case, the Supreme Court upheld the ministerial exemption and did not rule in favor of morrissey barus claim, even if the Church had acted in a discriminatory way
1: what the Supreme Court said. We're not specifically saying that this law or this exception, the First Amendment exception, bars other types of lawsuits, such as breach of contract um, against a religious employer. But in the employment discrimination context, it's just been made painfully clear that the courts are, and the Supreme Court specifically, you know, is not going to intervene in churches being able to make decisions of their own about pastors, folks holding against certain important positions. It's not clear what certain important positions mean. It certainly includes teachers. So basically anybody sort of serving a religious function. So, and again, this is recent case law. So the way it's going to shake out, perhaps, you know, and I would hope that what we would see is that courts might take a more reasonable position towards folks who don't serve a religious function. So, Kendra, with you, you had a podcast. You were, I assume, talking theology, talking religion, um, talking about church doctors. So for you, the Supreme Court would call you a minister, even if that's not you know the correct term for your particular church. Um, but somebody who is just sort of working in the church and and not serving a religious function, whether or not somebody like that would be permitted to bring an employment discrimination case, if for example they do get fired for being gay or being a racial minority or you know for some other protected class reason, because they got too old and the church you know decided they didn't want old folks working for them anymore. That sort of remains to be seen. But what has been made, again, painfully clear, is that cases such as yours, Kendra, falls squarely within these exceptions where courts are just not going to intervene in these employment decisions, even when they're sort of blatantly unfair and discriminatory.
0: Yeah, it's kind of frustrating because in our church in particular, there's been a historic divide over whether or not women should or can be ordained. And many women are like, look, I am more free being a member of society and not the church. I am more protected in secular institutions than I am working for the church. So why am I even here? And I think it hurts the morale of members when they look for a future of inclusion and they can never envision a church that fully includes them. Is there ever a time in the future where you see these laws changing?
1: Well, I... I never say never, right? We've seen plenty of things change, again, throughout American history, civil rights law, you know. I mean, the most sort of blatantly egregious thing that was enshrined in our Supreme Court case law was, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson, separate but equal. Segregation was once the law of this land, and it took, obviously, years, decades, and extremely powerful and sustained organizing to change that. And and even after the Supreme Court decision, you know, that – decision of overturning Plessy versus Ferguson and Brown versus Board of Education, of course ordering you know desegregation that had to be implemented by like the National Guard. So folks don't change overnight um, and you know I, I do think we're up against something very similar where there are very powerful conservative lobbies that, that are gonna fight really, really hard to you know retain their autonomy. And retain their autonomy is a diplomatic way <laughs> to put it, you know, what I'm really thinking is to be allowed to continue to discriminate. But but it is about church autonomy, right? It is about churches being able to make their own decisions about who they hire, who they employ, what gets taught, you know, in their community. So there is a little bit of separation there. So so mm. I think we're, we're going to see this being the law of the land for, for quite some time now mm. that it is, you know, firmly established Supreme Court case law.
0: She said something key. Churches get to make decisions about who they hire and employ. You and I are part of those churches. We are the ones who can start to make a change.
1: I would say that organizing is really the only answer that we have here. And Mm -hmm. organizing to change the law is a really, really tough thing to do. But organizing within your own church community, I think, is something that doesn't seem like such a daunting, overwhelming idea, right? I mean, if you got a bunch of your friends together and said, Hey, we want to change the Supreme Court case law, it would be like, What? How do we even <laughs> begin to do that? But if you were to get a group of folks together within your church community, and you've already said kind of that there's a massive divide in the church about whether women should be allowed to be ordained, there's I'm sure there's folks that are really ready to push for that change. And I mean if the if the church listens and does the right thing and you know, listens to the people and makes that change, then that I think is something that can be done sort of within our own smaller communities that is more, <laughs> I would hope, more likely to produce real change than sort of this long process of grinding through the legal system, um, because that would be just an extremely arduous process you know, if if you've got your own community and you've got the capability to organize within your community, within your church, uh, or whatever your religious institution is, um, with your own people, that I think is something that can go a really, really long way.
0: In many ways, this conversation brought me a lot of hope. We make change. We are the ones who make up the church. We are the community affected by bigoted policies and frankly, bad theology. There are many of us on the fringe who love our church and are grieved by its wrongs. But together, we, we can hold power accountable to just actions. We can demand that all of us are treated as Imago Dei.
1: I would say that it has become more sort of mainstream and sort of more in the public discourse more recently as far as public support for LGBTQ rights, whereas folks of the past couple of generations in America are sort of grow up, I would hope, knowing (laughs) or learning about the history of racial segregation in America and how that was wrong. And it's sort of very much enshrined in our national understanding that we used to have really bad racial segregation. Now we don't because that was wrong. And of course, I could get more... (laughs) I could do a whole other podcast episode about how not everybody realizes that. And we still have a ton of work to do in that regard. But I think that's Mm -hmm. something that has more so been uh, enshrined um, further back in time in America, whereas LGBTQ rights seem to be sort of a more recent thing where, I mean, you know, gay marriage, of course, was only made legal in the past, what, decade? So I think it just takes a great deal of time to sort of burn it into the national understanding that that discrimination against LGBTQ people is wrong. And I mean, trans rights are still being very hotly debated in a way that, you know, I find extremely disturbing because you shouldn't be debating folks' humanity. But I, I just think it's something that takes a ton of time, a ton of time. And for somebody like you, who's deeply um, I assume, committed to this church community and invested in its long-term uh, sustainability as a church, you, you want to see it get better, right? When you love something, you want to help it improve. When it's your own community, you know, you really have to show that sort of long-term love and commitment towards let's make this better. Let's be better together, right?
0: And with that, yeah, let's be better together. I don't really know what the right way forward is in this moment, or how church legislative change is made. If any of you all know how change happens at the church level, or how members can organize to see a more inclusive space, please let me know. Maybe that's a conversation for a future episode. Imago Gay is a podcast where we explore queer questions and a colorful God. In addition to curious questions, I'd love to receive questions and letters from you. So you can send in your personal stories and curious questions to me at Kendra R. Snow with an X on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow our sponsors, Spectre Magazine and SDA Kinship International. And be sure to sign up for their newsletter where you will get the latest updates on queer news and happenings. This episode was created and engineered by yours truly. And sponsored by Spectra Magazine and SDA Kinship International.